0: This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, Last week, we finished up our series on who counts, who matters to God. And so now for the uh, rest of Epiphany Tide, we'll be uh, reading and preaching on our lectionary reading. So today, uh, our gospel story is Luke chapter 4. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. I don't have asthma, but I understand from, from those who do and from what I've read that when an asthma attack comes upon somebody, it's very terrifying. They begin to feel the constriction of their breathing, and this causes a panic, which exacerbates the condition because what makes asthma worse is when you panic, and what you need to do is stay calm and take a deep breath. But that's the very thing that when you're having an asthma attack, you, you can't do. You can't stay calm and take a deep breath. The asthma attack has removed that ability from you. And so, the one thing you need to do is the one thing you can't do. And I wonder if, for all of us, that's a comparison, something we can relate to when we're having an attack of unbelief. We feel and sense that our faith is beginning to erode. Our trust in the Lord, our belief in His goodness is starting to fade. And all of a sudden, our heart, our soul, our mind, our our belief organs start to seize up, and we panic. And what makes it worse is the one thing we know we need to do, trust the Lord, just believe in Him, is the one thing we're struggling to do. And we need the Holy Spirit to be the divine inhaler to come and breathe life from outside into us, to clear up our lungs, breathe faith, and heal our unbelief. Because one thing that we cannot do is we cannot minimize the importance of faith. In order to make ourselves feel better, it's not going to work. First, we would have to be false to the Scriptures just a cursory reading of the Bible and especially the Gospels, we see how important is faith and belief and trusting in God without reservation, with abandon, as they say. It's all over the place. We can't get around it. So we can't minimize the importance of faith. That's something we cannot do. And the Gospel story today highlights this very fact of the need of faith. But what we can do is we can understand our need to be healed of unbelief, that we, in many ways, are like Nazareth, where Jesus was familiar, he was domesticated. It's like us here in church. We've, we've known about Jesus from the days of Sunday school, those of you who've grown up in church. And so here, like in Nazareth, our favorite, pro, our favorite beatitude, rather, is, "...blessed are those who expect little, for they shall not be disappointed." Now, Jesus had been going all throughout Galilee, healing every kind of illness and affliction. And he comes to Nazareth, and what he finds is not blindness or leprosy or any physical ailment, but a spiritual one, that of unbelief. That is what they needed to be healed from, but they didn't know it. And often, neither do we. Rather than seeing unbelief as an illness or something we need to be healed from, something that we need removed from us, we try to manage it or deal with it. We try to rationalize, rationalize our way out of it, think our way through it. If I just read the right books, well, that can help at times, but often we try to think our way through our unbelief and we end up more messed up than we began. Or sometimes we try to force our way out of unbelief by just trying really, really hard to believe and we end up exhausted. We don't realize this is something to be healed from. We need a medicine. We need something outside of ourselves and outside of our power to heal us. And this morning we have the gift, we have the chance, the opportunity to do what those Nazarenes failed to do—to see our need, to admit it, and to ask to be healed of unbelief. Because again, what we cannot do is we cannot minimize the essential place of belief and trust in our lives, in our life toward God. Because the clear truth of the story of Jesus being rejected at Nazareth is that unbelief will limit God's ability to be at work in your life. Or if we flip that upside down and and state it positively, we can also say faith is the open door, the green light for the power of God to be at work in your life. So as we turn to Luke 4... We'll back up a little bit from where we read to verses 14 and 15. These give a description of what had been happening prior to Jesus coming to Nazareth. He's going all throughout Galilee, and he's preaching, and he's healing, and the report of this is going ahead of him. So now all of Galilee is hearing about this Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 16, we see he comes to Nazareth, and as was his custom, he goes into the synagogue. So there's a pattern. When he comes to a new town, he goes to the synagogue. And it also says that he found the place in the scroll where then the passage from Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's anointed me to declare good news to the poor, heal those who are blind, declare captivity, uh, captives free, uh, set free the oppressed. That beautiful passage from Isaiah 61 that's quoted there in Luke chapter 4. He reads this. Now what's interesting there, is typically, at that time, the readings in the synagogue were just done in course, meaning we just picked up where we left off the week before. So you wouldn't go and find a place. Jesus went and found the place where these words were written because he had an intentional message. He had something he wanted to say. And when it says this was his custom, this is the pattern, we can assume that Jesus is on an Isaiah 61 tour his disciples they've got the t-shirts it says the anointed tour on the back and there's like a list of all the towns that they've been to and Jesus is doing the same thing he's opening up Isaiah 61 he's preaching on it and then as even now in healing ministries will do you don't just preach and teach into something you invite people to receive the healing that you taught on so he's going into synagogues all over Galilee he's saying this is fulfilled in me the healing of blindness The setting free of those oppressed, especially by uh, unclean spirits and other illnesses. I'm here to heal you. And then who would like to receive? And in every town, people respond, and in every town, mighty works are done until he comes to Nazareth. Nazareth was unique. In Nazareth, something went wrong. And when we look at the account from Matthew and Mark's perspective, who also tell the story, they tell us exactly what it was. At the end, it says, And Jesus marveled, he was astonished at their unbelief, and he could do no mighty work there. That's what Mark's gospel tells us. It tells us that Jesus was limited in his ability for the power of God to be at work through him because of their unbelief. That's what went wrong. But wait, let's go back to the story, because at first it seems like everything is going so well. What happened? So if we look at verses 18 and 19, that's where we have the quote from Isaiah. Jesus reads that. He rolls up the scroll. The eyes are on him. They're anticipating. They're ready for what he has to say, and he begins to teach, and he says, this is fulfilled in me. And verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Everything seems to be going well, yet this is the same story that ends with them trying to toss him off a cliff. What happened? Well, if you look between the word mouth and the word and, after that period, there's a space on your page that's about three millimeters large. In the actual story, we don't know, but something happened in that space. And the people started connecting dots and asking questions. And the seeds of unbelief started sprouting up, and they said, wait a minute, we know this guy. We grew up with this guy. And now he's not only claiming to be Messiah with, with these great powers, but he's claiming to be God in the flesh, the Son of God. And that's too much for them. So we don't know what exactly happened to get them on that train of of doubt. But what we do know is that eventually it's familiarity that began to breed contempt in them. Again, we get some help from Matthew and Mark's account where they tell us that the questions they're asking are, don't we know his family? Aren't his brothers here and his sisters? We know them. In other words, we know this family. Nothing amazing is going to come from this family. They're too poor to send anybody off to college. Where did he get this wisdom? He's the carpenter. Where did he get this power? We we never saw this in the 30 years that we knew him and grew up with him. And so because of familiarity, they do not believe. Apparently, as the village carpenter, he was pretty normal. The the tables that he made were not clearly divine. He was so normal, in fact, that all the nice-sounding words about the blind-seeing and the captives being set free and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, in their minds they're saying, well, yeah, that paints a pretty picture, but I just can't believe that that's fulfilled in the guy who redid my bathroom two years ago. Now keep in mind, at the same time, the reports had already gone out all through Galilee, so they had heard the reports. They've heard, and this is the point in the story where they are deciding... believe the report or not to believe the report. And what we see is that they choose not to believe the report. well, we heard that you did this, but we're not going to believe that you actually did. What's the result? That Jesus could do no mighty work there. And again, as we imagine that this story might have taken place over the span of several hours or even a couple of days, there was now a moment where they were expecting... Where are the mighty works? We're not seeing them. We heard the report. We're not seeing them. And it further fuels their unbelief. Jesus is aware of what's happening. When they say, is this not Joseph's son? He knows and understands all that's happening, why they're doubting. And he says, verse 23, you'll quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Meaning, if you're going to be someone who claims to do great healing things for other people, but then you yourself are not able to diagnose and treat a very common illness, we're we're going to be suspicious of that report. So, yes, we've heard you do these things elsewhere. You come home to your hometown. We don't see it. We're suspicious. And he says, you're saying in your hearts, do hear what we heard you did at Capernaum. Now, there's a difference between do hear what you did at Capernaum and do hear what we heard that you did. It's just an extra shade of doubt. I'm not going to say you did those things. I'm going to say I heard that you did those things. What happens to you when you hear a report of miracles or visions or healings that are happening here, even in America, around the world? Is there a, praise God, Jesus is at work, or is it, well, I've, I've heard that he's doing it, but I'm, I'm not so sure. I'm going to withhold judgment and hold that at arm's length for now until I see it with my own eyes. The pattern that we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus does not appreciate it when they ask for a sign first, and then they'll believe. Show me, and then I'll believe. Instead, he's always giving them the invitation, no, believe, and then you'll see the sign. Believe first. So aware of these dynamics in verses 25 to 27, he tells two stories from the Old Testament about Elijah who was sent to a widow in Sidon and Elisha who cured Naaman the Syrian of leprosy. So both the widow and Naaman were foreigners. When we go back to those stories and read them in the Old Testament, as they're written in the Old Testament, there's no sense that uh, the, the writer of those stories doesn't make Much of anything about the fact that Elijah is being sent to a foreigner and Elisha is healing a foreigner. He doesn't say anything about Elijah and Elisha passing over the widows of Israel or the lepers of Israel. So it's Jesus who brings that point out. That's not in the original story, that's his commentary, which means he's intentionally trying to make the point. And what's the point that he's trying to say? Because of the unbelief of Israel. Elijah was sent outside of Israel. Because of the unbelief of Israel, Elisha cured no lepers. There were lepers in Israel. None of them were cured. And the people of Nazareth, they understood the point he was trying to make. They received it as a personal attack. They were smart enough to see that he was saying, yes, and you are like the widows in Israel in Elijah's day and the lepers in Israel in Elisha's day and you are not experiencing the power of God, but it is because of your unbelief. And they get mad. They go from unbelief and suspicion to wrath. And they who were marveling at his gracious words just a time before this are now forcing him to the edge of the cliff on which their town is built in order to throw him down and kill him. It's a crazy story when you consider it from beginning to end. For the the Nazarenes, what they just could not believe is that the guy they grew up skateboarding with is now claiming to be Messiah and even more than that, divine God. God. And again, we can understand this a little bit. Somebody you grew up with who was overall a decent person now is claiming to be divine, you might have the same reaction. But for us today, who have now grown up 2,000 years since this story, 16 centuries since the Council of Nicaea, when the truths about Jesus being fully God and fully man we're, were nailed down once and for all. We who have lived on that side of, of that history and have grown up in Sunday school, knowing and hearing that Jesus is God, we may not be offended in the same way that the Nazarenes were. They, they just, they could not handle that the Jesus they grew up with is God. For us, that may not quite be the issue. That truth is no longer extraordinary to us. Not because it's not extraordinary, it is, but because it's familiar. Yeah, I've known that all my life. And what's familiar is no longer extraordinary. Shouldn't be that way, but that's, that's our experience, isn't it? All the more to the point that we are Nazareth and that there's a Jesus that we've grown up with. Not in the same way that the people contemporary with Jesus literally grew up with him, but you, if you've been in the church your whole life, Or for a long time, you've grown up with Jesus. And maybe you're not saying, I just can't believe that he's divine. But for us today, I wonder if our unbelief takes more the form of, yeah, I just can't believe that the Jesus I grew up with is really active and a part of my life right now. Yeah, I know that he's there up in heaven at the Father's right hand. I I believe that. I even believe the stories and the miracles. I don't outwardly reject them. They're all kind of part of my culture and how I understand who I am. He's there, but I have a hard time believing that he's here, that he's with me, that he wants to shepherd me and guide me, that he wants to help me and hear me and heal me. That's where I think we have a hard time believing in the Jesus that we grew up with, doing miracles in our day, hearing our prayers, and so, like at Nazareth, we often respond to our own unbelief with wrath towards God and rejection of Him. Just like in the story, once they realized that He was convicting them of unbelief, He's saying, Look, this is unbelief. They respond with wrath and they try to kill Him, they push Him further away. And we do the same thing. We get to that point of unbelief where we say, God, I, I, just, I just don't believe you're there for me. And then we move from there in unbelief, and we, we turn to the pushing away. So I, I'm, I'm giving up on you. I'm giving up on prayer. And also, I am angry. I had a conversation just this week with a young man saying, if God would just do what we were asking for, It would be so much easier for me to believe in his goodness. Doesn't he want that? Doesn't he want me to believe in his goodness? Why does it seem like my prayers are going nowhere? It's a familiar place for many of us. And as I walked away from that conversation, I said, I I know for a fact he's not the only one who's feeling that way today. I know for a fact he's not the only one who's ever felt that way. And we become angry and we say things to God, and we harbor attitudes and things in our heart against God that we never thought we would say or feel. Have you been there? It's a really awful place to be. You feel that paralysis and that helplessness of that asthma attack, and then you couple that with now the shame of, look what I'm capable of. Look what I've done no one wants to be there no one loves unbelief and i want to say to you this morning if that's anywhere close of where you are today or have been this week then hear me now no matter how bad it is no matter what trial you are in your story is not over yet that is so important to hold on to that three letter word yet that's where god lives That's where faith dwells. Your story is not over yet. And God has not given up on you yet. Let's turn again to the story. Let's see something really interesting. Verse 29. In the strange climax of the story, they rose up and drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now, what I want us to sit with for a little while is imagine that space. Again, we don't know exactly how far it is, but imagine the space between the town and the edge of the cliff. And imagine Jesus letting himself, being forced along and pushed. He's not resisting. Why? Have you ever wondered that? Why does he let them bring him all the way to the brow of the cliff before then he turns and miraculously escapes and walks to the crowd supernaturally? Why didn't he do that right away? Well, I wonder if it's maybe for a couple of reasons. One, he actually wants that visceral memory of that moment on, for those who participated in that moment to perhaps be a wake-up call later on to say, oh, my word, look what I'm capable of. An anger and a wrath so great, I once tried to kill God by throwing him off a cliff. They would be sobered by that and perhaps turned and changed. This would happen again, by the way, later in Jesus' life, where the wrath of man and the anger of man would not try to throw him off a cliff but would hang him up on the cross. Look what the, the wrath of man is capable of. That's where verse 30 is really important, by the way, that Jesus does miraculously escape Reminds us he could do the same on the cross if he'd wanted to, he did not want to. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. But all of this is to show this is what we're capable of in our anger against God. We get so angry, we would crucify him. One good thing about our anger at God and the rejection of him that comes in our worst moments is that we have a a little more understanding for the crowd and the mob that cried out, crucify, crucify. We look at ourselves and our own lives and we realize it's not so hard to imagine myself crying out, crucify. And how sweet it is to hear the voice of Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're saying. They don't know what they're doing. So God allows us to reject him. He he allows us to actually push him to the edge of the cliff so that we're humbled by what we're capable of and in our hopes that we return and repent. And this leads to the second reason why I think maybe Jesus allowed himself to be pushed right up to the brink. Why does he let them do it? Why does he not miraculously escape right at the beginning? Because of his incredible patience. He's giving them time to repent. Up to the last second, he's hoping they'll change and turn around and not follow through with their plan. He is so patient. Even in our anger, even in our unbelief. And notice, what does Jesus not do? He doesn't throw them off the cliff. He had the power to do that. He certainly had the justification. He could have turned them around and threw them all off the cliff, but he doesn't. He walks away. He says, Let Nazareth be for now. Even in your anger and rejection of God, He does not reject you. He gives you time to repent. And you say, But wait, Brett, He left. He left Nazareth. He walked away. He gave up on them. This is the fun part of the story. He's not through with Nazareth yet. Again, in Mark and Matthew's account, we learn that in the crowd that day were his brothers and his sisters, and it even named some of his brothers, one of them being James. Now, we're going to assume that James is not part of the group that really tried to throw him off the cliff, although I'm a brother, I have brothers, so it may not be too hard to visualize. Let's assume that, that Jesus' brothers weren't trying to kill him, but. In John's gospel, different story, but it, he records a dispute that Jesus had with his brothers and afterwards John says, "For even his brothers did not believe him." So we know that James and the rest of the crew did not believe Jesus. Certainly at this point and even much later, this same James, who's not the son of Zebedee, not the son of Alphaeus, who are two of the 12, the apostles, different James, this is the James who wrote the letter, James a book of the Bible. It was this James who became the first bishop of Jerusalem, who was there that day rejecting Jesus and later on repented and came to believe and came to be one of the pillars and leaders of the church. And others of Jesus' kindred did as well. There are other records of different ways that they served and were leaders in the early church. So. Jesus did not give up on Nazareth. He doesn't give up on you. So, yes, God is so patient with our unbelief. But let's bring it back to the main point, which is, that doesn't mean that we like unbelief. That doesn't mean that the goal is unbelief. And the last thing we want to do is make friendly with unbelief. Now, remember, what we were saying at the beginning, Unbelief is an illness and an ailment. It is a disease that we want to be healed of. And oh, that we would do differently today than Nazareth did. That we would see our need, admit our need, and ask Jesus for healing. So as we close today, let's talk about how do we begin to heal from unbelief. What can we do? We're going to talk about three things today. First, how do we begin to heal from unbelief? Well, it helps to know that faith is communal. You didn't learn the faith in isolation, much like you didn't learn the English language in isolation or whatever your primary and first language was. You learned it by being a little child immersed in a community of others who spoke that language. Same thing with your faith. That's how you received your faith. That's how you grow in your faith, is in a community of believers. So faith is communal. But if faith is communal, so too is unbelief. Unbelief is communal. It was the whole community and town of Nazareth that rejected Jesus. The unbelief there was contagious, it was infectious. And to be a part of that community was to be a part of the community of unbelief. So ask yourself, whose company are you traveling in these days? Think about the people that you are with, that you are listening to, in the flesh, but also online, the books that you're reading. What are the voices that are influencing you, and what is the effect that they have on your faith? Are they helping you grow in your faith, or are they leading you to greater doubt? And if it's the latter, it's time to leave Nazareth. It's time to say, I'm packing my bags, and I'm looking for a different company to walk with. I need to be among those of strong faith. I need to be among believers, because faith is communal. So too is unbelief. Number two, we come into healing from unbelief when we realize that our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in God. Here's what I mean. That if we are to grow in faith, it doesn't happen by looking inward and, and trying to manufacture more faith or to measure our faith and ask the question, well, do I have enough faith to pray for this or this or that? The ironic thing is we don't grow our faith by trying to. Our faith grows when we set our eyes not on ourselves, but upon the Lord. And when we remember and call to mind and indeed proclaim and declare who God is and what He has done. So, when you're in that place of unbelief, the hardest thing for you to do, and yet the most powerful thing you to do, is to stand, and I do mean stand in prayer. And into the dark, speak words of light and truth, and declare with your lips. Whether you can fully feel it or not, declare the truth. God, I choose to believe that you are there. God, I choose to believe that you're the maker of all things. Everything comes from you, maker of heaven and earth. God, I choose to believe you came to this earth, that you died for my sins. I choose to believe, Jesus, you were raised from the dead, never die again, and you have invited me into that same eternal life. I believe you're coming back. I believe these things. I believe you're good. I believe you're hearing me right now as I pray. And the act of proclamation and the act of declaration can and does build your faith. But that's not looking inward. That's looking to God. Who is he? What has he done? And you're rehearsing that. But now back to the first point. Faith is communal. You can do this by yourself, and prayers of praise and thanksgiving are efficacious. But how much better when it's the faith in the mouth of a brother or a sister? you have a ministry of proclamation one to another where you declare, whether it's in res groups or youth group or your connection classes or the informal fellowship gatherings, you have a ministry to proclaim and declare this is who God is. This is what he's done. This is what the Bible says. And also, this is what he's done for me today and this week. Our testimony of God's action in our lives builds faith in our brothers and sisters as we declare and proclaim who God is. So, our faith is not in our faith. We don't look to ourselves. We look to God. Who is He? What He's done? And as we proclaim and declare, faith is built. And lastly, the third thing, and the simplest of all, we begin to heal from unbelief when we understand and acknowledge that it's a disease, and it's a disease that I have and that you have, and that Jesus can heal it. So in that place of humility, in that place of, of repentance, Lord, forgive my unbelief, we also come with openness and in saying, increase my faith, heal my unbelief. So, Lord, as we close today, and as we think about coming to confession, as we think about coming to your holy presence at the altar Lord, we do come humble, aware of what we are capable of. We know our anger and our wrath towards you, and we say, even now, it is unjustified. It is unjustified, and we're sorry. We thank you for your patience that you do not reproach us, that you don't throw us off the cliff. And we do pray, Lord, that as we confess our sins, as we receive your very real presence into our souls, that you would build the faith that sees you amidst our doubts. And would you increase our faith and the faith of this church? Would you make us a church and a community of ever-increasing faith in your goodness, in your power, and your love? We pray this for the glory of your name. Amen.